Hello and welcome back to Words the Bee Gees podcast. I'm Cristiano. And I'm Stuart. In today's episode, we're starting our journey through 1966 for part three of our Australian Years series. I can't believe it. In less than two months, we've gone seven years, haven't we? Well, this is the eighth year that the Gibb family were living in Australia. And I think the main thing that we'll find going through this year of music is that this is their eighth year in Australia and the desperation of the three brothers to get out of the confines of Australia becomes so clear through the the quality or sometimes lack of quality in terms of the production on the recordings, in terms of, I think, some of the songwriting and the way in which they were developing, they reached a point in which they'd become so advanced and developed that they needed to get out of where they were. I wonder what their priority was at the time. Like you say, do you think it was because they were unhappy with the very primitive recordings that they that they were having to work with yeah compared to us as what we said when they give away or do you think there was there was frustration as well of not having a hit single a combination of both i think so i think so and it's just a shame that when they did get a hit single they was already on the boat over to the uk mm. i've looked at this and it, it again you see for 66 it's been another productive year i've got over 45 gib compositions whether it's barry or now we're seeing songs by all three, or Morris has now got a composer to work with as well. Yeah. And and then we've also got about a dozen or so um, recordings of other people's stuff. So, yeah, very productive. Going back to the idea of desperation with the Bee Gees wanting to really try and reinvent themselves and move away from their previous Australian image of the cabaret group and the comedy circuit, etc., On the 27th of February, Sydney's Sunday Telegraph reports that after eight years of being known as one thing, the Bee Gees have decided that what their image really needs is a name change. It won't be the Bee Gees anymore. They want to be known as Rupert's World. Oh, okay. Do you think it's because the 66 was like psychedelic and it's got one of them sort of, you know, psychedelic feels to it? That name wouldn't have lasted would have dated, I think. Well, it would have dated by end of 67, yeah. at least, wouldn't it? But again, that goes back to what I've just said about lack of lack of um, hit singles, how the public perceived them to be, you know, as a child act, or novelty act. And I think, that, as you said, they just wanted to wipe the slate clean and just start with something fresh. At the beginning of the year, they were, they were just trying out different ways to build themselves up. And then also, do you think as well, with working with Bill Shepard, in 65 and then he had to go back to the UK and obviously back with him in 67 that that was a bit of a downer because obviously they used to working with somebody and was showing them different techniques in the student that that could be available to them yeah and obviously he must have said look I'm going to the UK because of they've got this in studios I would have thought and they've got you know there's plenty of things that you could work on to improve your songwriting and different ways to experiment I just think as you say that was that was in the forefront of their minds as to what to do next because it's so noticeable that when in the past few months of you and I going through all of this Australian music and for me it would often be listening to it all chronologically that I would start in 1963 and whilst the the songwriting itself was still fairly primitive the production was fine 
And as the three years progressed going into 1966, the songwriting improved vastly, but the production started to decrease. And there's some recordings going through 1966 that are more poorly produced than some of those 1963 songs. Yeah, you'll probably find the first half of 66 better than the second half. I get the impression that a lot of this sort of June, July recordings were sort of demos. Yeah, I'll explain more about the recording context of those sessions later on. And I think once you learn how and why those songs were recorded, certainly how and even where they were recorded, it starts to become clear why they sound the way that they do. It's even more frustrating when you hear the songs that they covered. The production on that is just like another notch up again. Yeah, and there's some of the songs that they gave away to other artists that sound really, really good. And one of the things that I mostly picked up on when listening to these 1966 songs would be to to find songs where I would think, hmm, I wonder whether that could have been on Bee Gees first. There's quite a lot from 66 that could have been. Yeah. Even the acetates that they sent over to the UK. I think there's even I Can't See Nobody that did go into the first album. Yeah. That was one of the acetates that they sent over. Quite a few of the songs then appeared on... Bee Gees first deluxe but not the 1966 recordings no. but songs like House of Lords Gilbert Green so I mean it's obviously songs that they they enjoyed and they were very much of the time as well I know a lot of these songs were given given away but again unfortunately there was it, it carried on with the Australian format of no hits there was a couple of songs from 66 I think pretty well in the charts because I think quite a few of them were used in 67 as well what are your opinions and memories of music in 1966? Probably more the same as 65, I would have thought. Still still getting singles. Petula Clark, I Couldn't Live Without Your Love. Morning Town Ride, New Seekers. Green Green Grass of Home, Tom Jones. Oh, crumbs, yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying to think now. I'll have to, I'll have to go through my, um, my, poorly, my poorly box of singles that were... I think all the sleeves were thrown away and they're just a box of vinyl. And this, as I think I said before, there's all like colouring on the label and bits. So, uh, <laughs> Was that you or your brother? Oh, it might have been him, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think I brought What's New, or I had What's New Pussycat as well, but unfortunately that, that got broken. God knows how it got broken, but uh, yeah, and that sort of vanished. Weren't years later till um, mum said that she accidentally um, broke it. Because <laughs> I kept saying, asking her where it was, and I couldn't find it anywhere. What I do remember, though, is for my birthday, I, I, t- I don't know why I got this one, it was Frank Sinatra's Stranger in the Night. I don't quite know whether, whether I liked them at the time or whether, whether mum or dad liked them and brought them for me, for them to listen. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> and then if they didn't like it, they could tread on them. Yeah. <laughs> In love forever, it turned out so right for strangers in the night. I'm now going to turn the tide on you now, actually. 
Because I know you like looking back on stuff. Is there any records you know of 66 that you like? There's two records from 1966 that I think it would be impossible not to talk about. And you can probably guess what they are. The Beatles Revolver and the Beach Boys Pet Sounds. Yeah. I think it would be impossible for us to go through this episode and the next episode and not mention the contextual influence of both of those albums. And as we go through the material on Spicks and Specs and the other music from 1966, it's very difficult not to see the comparisons between these three albums. Mm. And strangely, there's a lot of songs that the Bee Gees composed in 1966 that predate the Beatles' Revolver, but which sound a lot like the songs from Revolver. So I, I'm starting to wonder whether it was all of the other music around that was influencing them, and then possibly earlier songs like Paperback Writer, which slightly predated the album, which I think must have gone straight to Australia, and then Barry picked up on it immediately and thought, this is the new style that we should go with. Because there's a lot of covers from the Bee Gees this year where they're doing they're doing Ticket to Ride, Paperback Writer, You Won't See Me. I noticed that one. There's quite a lot, um, quite a lot of stuff. I recently discovered um, Pet Sounds, well, I say recently, within the last five or ten years. When I first heard it, I thought, what's all the fuss about? It, it, it didn't register. But by about three or four listens, the songs really, really sink in. Do you remember any of the songs at the time? No, the only song they, they did was uh, Wouldn't It Be Nice, which was released in 19, re-released in 1976. I think it was 76 it was re-released. For the 10th anniversary. It could have been, because in the UK in, seven, in 76 or 75, 76, they released all the, Be- all the Beatles singles. And I think Yesterday was actually released as a single, whereas it wasn't in 65. I'd obviously knew God Only Knows, which is up there with my favourite songs of all time. So, yeah. I don't know why, really. I didn't go to the album sooner. Now, we're talking about the Beatles and the Beach Boys. But what I do find with the Bee Gees music from 1966 is that there's a lot less pastiche. And there's so many songs that I'm listening to and thinking, there's no other artist that I know of that's recording songs like this. They really start to become their own band and they're recording songs that I think, yeah, the, this is a, like a quintessential Bee Gees song. And I think Barry was channeling all his all his songwriting then, wasn't he, to the group. We'll probably find as we go through, there's less songs given away. And I think, as I'll probably mention, I, I get the feeling that there's a few songs where Barry tailored his songwriting to fit Robin's voice or different voices, as we'll find out. And that just leaves Morris. I don't quite know where... I think Morris just sort of evolved, do you think? Well, one of my biggest surprises when going through these 1966 songs, I never realised how many Morris compositions there were. And he's, what, 16, 17? Yeah. I think because they had more freedom in the studio, I think he was able to experiment with keyboards, different types of electronic equipment and stuff. So he was obviously able to do some songwriting while Mm. messing around on the keyboards. Right, with that in mind, shall we um, go to the first single, 66?
This was released in March and we've got the A side as I Want Home and the B side as Cherry Red. Though it is a bit disputed whether it's the A or the B side. But according to Joseph Brennan's notes, it's all to do with the matrix number and it's got a lower matrix number. So that usually indicates that's the A side. Well, I think with, with these three words, it kind of explains the Bee Gees mentality in 1966. I want home. Get us back you know, to the I UK. Thought, I haven't thought of that. No, not even into my head that, but that, that's, that's true, isn't it? So this single was released in March and it was recorded at Festival Studios in Sydney. It's unconfirmed, but it's very probable that Colin Peterson is playing the drums on these two songs. Oh, right. He's on, he, is actually, that his first appearance, do you think? I think he might have shown up in 1965, but he does then appear on a lot of these 1966 recordings. I think more of them have him on drums than don't have him on drums. I always find it difficult with, with bands when people say, oh, I can tell that it's that drummer. For me, it always is no, difficult to tell. But I can kind of tell that it's Colin. I was listening to these songs with the mindset of then comparing it to Horizontal and Bee Gees First, and I could see some sort of similarity. What do you think to the rhythm of that? I think it's, I think it's a very catchy record. I find that I Want Home sounds like it originates from two different songs that are pieced together, but, but they work together quite nicely, I think. You've got the the verse and then the chorus seem like just two separate things, but they seem to fit nice more nicely than you think they should. The song fades out quite early and it could have had a really good stripped back ending in the style of the song's opening it could have had a really good closing coda but it, it seems to just fade before it really finds its feet i like it very good but i do prefer the cherry red yeah i think this is far stronger than the a side easily one of my favorites from 1966 where are you I think, Chris, this is another top-notch track. It's a beautiful song with some gorgeous harmonies. I like the exchanges between Robin and Barry. But in about 3.07, the song gets a chance to shine with, a, with an added instrument. According to Gibbs songs, it's called a Farfissa organ, which got credit on the label of the single. But it's played by Morris, who didn't get no credit. <laughs> and sometimes I find it difficult to work out which brother of the two is singing the lead vocal there's the line deepest than the greenest sea and i listen to that and sometimes i think it's robin sometimes i think it's barry Then you got the wonder why part as well. I was listening to that and I could not work out whether that was 
part of the verse or whether it was a bridge because it goes on for longer than eight bars so I couldn't quite define it as a middle eight plus it repeats again but that's one of the best moments of the song as we were seeing these recordings for 66 and when they start recording the album this like the Beatles this is like a precursor to the album as neither track appear on there yeah but either of these could have been oh easy specs and specs easy there was a promotional flyer that came with the single for I Want Home and Cherry Red. And the flyer described the two songs as being right up to standard with the driving, exciting vocal sounds which have placed the Bee Gees up and apart from the majority of vocal groups. Whilst Cherry Red is a big sounding, high quality ballad. Looking at all the, these reviews that we've read before and now, do you think the Bee Gees were becoming more of a musician's band? What I mean is, do you think musicians rated them really highly, especially Barry's song compositions? Yeah. Uh, the way the songs were structured, the vocals, as opposed to the, you know, the public, the record buying public that wasn't buying them. Because around this time, Hugh Gibb, who was acting as the Bee Gees manager, was claiming, or not very happy about the promotion, the lack of public interest. This is why they left the record label they're on. And the solution came when producer Nat Kipner offered to sign the boys to a newly formed label, which was Spin. But Festival did get the rights for Spin, and the Bee Gees got a chance then, or was offered a chance, to spend more time in the studio, experimenting, working with their compositions. And for Nat Kipner, he got what he considered potentially the best group in Australia. And he could offer more time because the recording facilities were cheaper than Festival and this was at St Clair Studios in Hurstville, which is just outside of Sydney. And so while they had more studio time and the studio was cheaper, that does show in the quality of recordings because there was no four track. But studio time, I think, was the most important thing for the Bee Gees and Robin later recalled, we were in there day and night and we could experiment for the first time. We felt great wrote all our own music, it was like a whole new door had been opened. And so these studio sessions were engineered by Ozzy Byrne. Barry recalled a positive working relationship with Byrne, saying, he was like a spirit guide, sent to make sure that what we wanted to do happened. He wanted to help us develop. And then Byrne and Kipner also encouraged Robin and Morris to start composing and then as a result, Morris starts composing with Kipner. Because I'm struggling to find any information as when, when they go on tour, or if they did tour, as to what songs they did, what set lists. But looking into um, Andrew Sanderville's book, there's a quote from Robin, and he says, Ozzy was a vital part of, of that team. He'd spend many hours of his time with us exploring those avenues we wanted to go down. He gave up all his studio time and gave it to us. We were in there 24 hours a day. And that shows not only in the amount of songs that they then recorded, but also in, in terms of the songwriting itself and the type of songs. There's a lot of subtle and sometimes very overt differences in the songwriting. For example, with the previous songs that you said, that organ solo it's just little things like that it's using a different type of instrument it might be just going for a different type of production we're pretty far now from the sounds of 1964 I think no definitely
Also in March, the Bee Gees' second EP was released, and this was titled Wine and Women, and this included the title track, along with Follow the Wind, and on the flip side, Peace of Mind and Don't Say Goodbye. So again, this is another EP that's about a year behind the times. Yeah, and this came out, when did you say? March 1966. So the same time, so it's competing against uh, um, I Want Home and Cherry Red then? Yeah. You think rather than spend all this money producing vinyl of old stuff, they'd spend more time putting their money into promoting a group mm. with, with the current material, wouldn't you? Yeah, it's all, all, all quite bizarre, actually, when you look back at it. That was in March, and then in April, uh, Barry copyrighted a couple of new songs. One was called House on the Windy Hill, and the other one was called Listen to Your Heart. As we say a million times, nothing has ever heard of these two songs. But we do have a song released in May, and it's called Neither Rich or Poor. This song was recorded by Richard Wright, however, not the same Richard Wright as Pink Floyd. Oh, okay. <laughs> and this was released as the B-side to a non-Gib composition titled You Can't Love Em All. And the song was produced by David Mackay. There's a guitar riff that runs underneath Neither Rich Nor Poor that's very similar to the guitar sound on I Want Home and is a similar guitar sound that can be heard across a lot of these 1966 recordings. I think this is a fine song. It wouldn't have been out of place on Spicks and Specs. I'm not sure whether the brothers were present at the recording sessions, but I can definitely hear their influence in the way that Wright's doing his sort of vocal delivery. Well, that's very similar to what I've got, because I, I, I really like this one, actually. It's really upbeat. I've got on my notes, it's a pity we don't get a, a Bee Gees version, as I could quite Im- easily imagine Robin and uh, Barry doing this together. And I'd like you, Chris, I put down it's got a similar feel to I Want Home. Yeah, they're very much cut from the same cloth. And they did this last year, I think, with a sort of a waltz with watching the hours go by. I was a lover. So, but yeah, I mean, this is another song that it's a shame, but I think it. we need another compilation of um, Bee Gees songs given away. Throughout April and May, there was a batch of songs that were recorded, many of which would form the basis of the Bee Gees' second album, Spicks and Specks. The personnel includes Colin Peterson on drums, John Robinson on bass, Kipner as producer and also on vocals, and then Ozzy Byrne as engineer. Morris is across guitar, bass, piano, as well as vocals, and that already demonstrates from such an early age his multi-instrumental capability. Yeah, and there's some fine songs on this, isn't there? I'm looking in front of me a recent vinyl copy that you've acquired for Spicks and Specs. Very good it is as well. And it hangs together really well as an album. So I'll go through the track listing. Side one, Monday's Rain, How Many Birds, Play Down, Second Hand People, 
I don't know why I bother with myself. Big chance. On side two, spicks and specks. Jingle jangle. Tint of blue. Where are you? Born a man. And then finally, glass house. And it goes through very quickly. BG's first. You probably could put an extra couple of tracks on there. This is the sort of album that we wanted to see in 1965 because this is all compositions that had not appeared previously and were written. I get the feeling with Spicks and Specks that this is an album's album as opposed to... Collection of songs put together. Which is what the Bee Gees Sing and Play yeah. was. That was a compilation, whereas this is an actual album. I think Thought must have gone into this sequencing as per any other album. Well, I get the impression with Sing and Play that that was put together by... Not by the Bee Gees themselves, whereas Spicks and Specks, I can imagine the three brothers looking over this and deciding, right, we want side one to start with Monday's Rain, and we should start side two with Spicks and Specks, and then let's close side two with Glass House. I, I get the impression that thoughts like that were passing through their mind. And they've managed to put on a solo Morris song and a solo Robin song as yeah. well. It really forms the basis for a lot of future Bee Gees albums in terms of the fact that we get let's have a solo Morris song. Let's make sure we get a solo Robin song. Let's make sure that one side isn't dominated by purely Barry compositions or that it's dominated by just Barry lead vocals. What do you think of the album artwork? I think it's not bad, actually. It feels as much a part of 1966 as a way that Bee Gees First feels very much a part of 1967. But it's like the precursor to Bee Gees First because it's quite colourful and... yeah strange circles and and shapes and stuff and then you then you get into the really colorful bg's first before we go through the album i would like to read some of nat kipner's notes that he's written on the back of the spicks and specks vinyl sleeve and he says if persistence pays off then the bg's deserve a merit award for this tangible but nevertheless real commodity because it has taken precisely 11 records and countless heartbreaks and disappointments to acquaint the DJs and buyers to the now obvious fact that the Bee Gees are indeed one of the finest exponents of pop in this or any other country. The truth will out. But a lot of albums in the 60s, early 60s, they they had a lot of this write-up. Well, I suppose then, you know, there was no internet or anything, and it was just a way of people, you know, as I said before, when you get the hold of the vinyl, particularly if it was gatefold, and then you get the 70s, you've got all the lyrics on the inner sleeve. So it just gives you something to hold and look at. And also these, these ones been able to read a bit about them as well. So with that, should we start on side one, track one, Monday's Rain, which is quite fitting for the day that we're recording this. <laughs> it's England. Sun shining down on me Is it you, my love, that I can see? Don't go away Don't go away Don't let me Well, this is showing the Bee Gees' intentions already with track one, where we get Robin singing. <laughs> 
Yeah. Do you think he was like discovering his voice at the time? Whether you know whether he's to sing his normal voice, his vibrato, and but instead of any of that, we get like a baritone. I think I mentioned this before, but I think the next time we get to hear it on an album would be is it when do I from Trafalgar? Yeah, yeah. He doesn't explore it that much as a vocal technique, but here it works so well. When I was doing my research for Monday's Rain, I looked at the notes in the Decades 1960s book, and I found that the writer of that, when they were talking about Monday's Rain, they were very dismissive of the song, and they said that it was not particularly good and had a clumsy production. And okay, I can sort of agree with the production being poor, but I love this track. I think it's one of the earliest defining moments for Robin, even though it's a Barry composition. And I do wonder whether, again... This is a song that Barry wrote with Robin in mind, knowing yeah. that he was going to sing it. I think it's quite stripped back. Again, like when I talked about in the morning, I think we get to hear Barry's trademark breathy vocal. Yeah. Well, this is the debut of Barry's breathy vocal. And that kind of makes this song like a good example, giving us the whole spectrum of the Gibb vocal techniques, because you're going from the baritone, vibrato, then Barry's breathy head voice. And interestingly enough, there are two versions of this song. When they released Brilliant From Birth, it was noticed that the vocal track on, on this one, Monday's Rain, was different from the LP version that appeared on Spicks and Specs. There are several differences. The easiest to note is that the first chorus of the album version begins with Don't Let Me Down, while the single version has Don't Go Away, the vocal style on the second verse is also notably different. On the single version, it's unmistakably sung by Barry. Don't let me down Baby, don't let me down I beg you, please don't let me hold Don't let me down Monday's Rain ended up being the first BG single that they released as part of Spin Records. And originally, it was meant to be backed with Playdown. Oh, okay, yeah. And also, Monday's Rain was going to be the title of the album, as opposed to Spicks and Specs. The only difference in the track listing for Monday's Rain is that the first track on side two, as opposed to being Spicks and Specs, was meant to be All of My Life. Which was the B-side to Monday's Rain. Bit confusing, but I think we get there. Before we go on to track two of Spicks and Specs, should we talk about the B-side to Monday's Rain? So, as with the last single, I actually prefer this side 
to the A-side. Do you? Yeah. I think it's a very commercial pop song. Very beatly, pre-Rubber Soul, I would say. We've said before about Morris sounding like John Lennon. I think we even get a little bit this time from Barry. Yeah. I think this sounds like a patchwork of different Beatles pieces. And I found a lot of similarities to I'll Get You and also All I've Got to Do. Yeah, well, I've put it, you could morph, she loves you, it won't be long and not a second time. And also you've got Morris's McCartney-inspired bass playing, which is all over this song, bouncing up and down the scales. And I think it gives the song extra punch. Yeah. Didn't they've added like some some distortion or something to sort of make it sound more contemporary? Yeah. Personally, I don't think this is stronger than the A-side. I prefer Monday's Rain. You do? If you had to swap this one for Spicks and Specs, do you think it was a good choice? No, I would have taken this off. And left it just as a sole B-side? Yeah. But saying that, there's enough room on the album to have put left this back it on. on. Left it on, yeah. I would have put it on track seven on side one. So with that then, shall we go into the second track of the album, which is How Many Birds? So lonely without you, baby Don't know what I'm gonna do Going crazy without you, baby Look at what I'm going through How many times must I tell you I love you Tell you I love you Times before You don't believe that I'm worth all your kissing I'm worth more than this, but you ain't no how many birds will I see high flying? How many birds will it take till I get you? I will be crying, yeah. To me, this has really strong chart potential. It runs to just under two minutes, but with a developed bridge and a revisited verse and chorus, this could have been transformed into a fuller song that I think would have gone down really well with critics. And it doesn't sound like Beatles pastiche, but it fits really nicely into the mid-60s pop landscape. Well, I think this one has got a fantastic intro. Yeah. I love the intro to this. But this one sounds almost like a Barry solo to me. So I, I get the impression he was probably working on his own in the studio with this. But as you say, it's short, but it, it packs a punch. Yeah, definitely. Especially with the build-up to the chorus. Barry comes in with another fantastic vocal. I mean, how many times do we say that? Copy, paste, copy, paste. But saying that, you know, thinking back, I don't think we mentioned his vocals in 65. When we was talking about the songs, I don't think we um, commented, but I I can assure you they get mentioned a lot in 66. Yeah. So I'm making up for that. I think um, 65 was a transitional one, and now we're we're getting the results of that. Yeah. Completely agree. Baby, baby, baby. So with that, shall we go into track number three, which is Playdown. Thank you. 
the first note that I've got for this song is that it's a grower. Playdown passed me by on the first few listens, but it's really become, yeah, a real grower for me for this era. Yeah, it's quite a slow song that builds and builds. Barry must have loved it because he does it in concert in 213. It's quite funny, actually, because Barry introduced this song at the Melbourne, his Melbourne concert by saying, we recorded this song with a smell of steak wafting in the studio. <laughs> St. Clair Studio in Hurstville. It was, it was a room above a, a butcher's. Oh, OK. So that, that's the conditions they're working in. I think it's quite important when you're listening to these songs from 1966, just to remember that. Remember the environment that they're recording these songs in. So what do you think of the early appearance of Deeply, Deeply Me vocal? <laughs> yeah, I thought about that. Sorry, wailing. And I did wonder whether that would put you off, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but this goes back to them having more time in the studio and more chance to experiment that they would have, instead of an instrument for the solo, use the vocals as the instrument. This is the first song, like you say, that we get to hear this. Mm. A little bit of, of experimenting. Well, we say experimenting, but I actually just think this is this is just 100% the Bee Gees. If you have them in a room together, they don't need to experiment. If anything, what they were doing before was them being constricted. This is just them as they are. You know, you, you can cut a song like Play Down in the middle and you'll find that the cross section is just 100% pure Bee Gees. And then we go back then to, I think there's fantastic harmonies on the all my friends part but do you think though that boring boring <laughs> robin i mean we got we've got the deep baritone in monday's rain we now get the quite bizarre backing vocals yeah. on this one i didn't develop my voice uh, at all uh, growing up i just sang because i, I like singing I kind of loved, you know, and Barry was the same. We tend to go around looking for big places with echo in them and then singing them, you know, even without instruments, just singing, you, know, you hear the voice. Uh, angelic, and it gives a whole different dimension. And only people who really like singing really can appreciate this. And it's, it's not uncommon with people uh, who, who are singers. They, they do this as kids. And um, I just liked the way I sounded, and I just didn't think, oh, I can sing. Uh, and I've got a great voice or I've got a lousy voice or anything. I didn't have any view of my voice. I just enjoyed it. So the fourth track we've got is Secondhand People As Tall As A Steeple. See the cracks upon the wall We do not know the meaning of it so Ain't no fire to warm us Ain't got a nickel for a bite to eat We're not working, we're not slaving Ain't worth the brain cause we're not worth saving Second-hand people Tall as a steeple 
done it before in previous podcasts and describing songs as Barry's pretty songs would you describe this one as pretty or as a sweet song or secondhand people is another social commentary song but this is much less overt than and the children laughing I've not put that this is a pretty song but this is a subdued song supposedly from the perspective of those in society who struggle with day-to-day life perhaps living in poverty, hunger, unemployment, etc. However, secondhand people could be taken to have other meanings. It means it could be viewed introspectively or autobiographically from the Bee Gees. They are secondhand people. Their music's being overlooked. Well, then you've got the, as I say, secondhand people, taller than steeple, softer than treacle. So when I was listening to them, I, I didn't assume it was anything other than just a play on words. I think it's a fine song. I mean, it doesn't let stay its welcome. I like the production on this. Do you know, I think this would fit finely on horizontal. I've listened to listened to this and I listened to horizontal. I thought, do you know, this would fit perfectly well on that. It wouldn't be out of place. The way that Barry's does the vocal. No, I, I wouldn't have any problems with this at all. On to the fifth song on Spicks and Specks, I Don't Know Why I Bother With Myself. I'm a fool, I've taken no advice And I'm so cruel, I'm talking to you nice But then again, you may not I've got this down as Robin's first solo composition that we've come across but I'm wondering whether it's his second one because I suppose it's just the way the album was released because I Am The World was a Robin solo so did that come before this or after this because hmm. this album was released after the single Spicks and Specks because I think they held it back didn't they and I think this is another quite stripped back production like I said with um, How Many Birds what do you think to this one? For the first few listens of the album, I would have said that this is the most forgettable on the album. Like Playdown, this is a grower. I think it's got a beautiful melody, quite similar to I Don't Think It's Funny, with Robin's yearning vocal, and really good lyrics as well. I only hurt her and kissed her three times out of nine. So was that Robin being positive this time? (laughs) (laughs) But the subject matter of loss self-pity is a precursor to the themes that Robin would explore in his solo career circa 1970. And then I suppose during 66 we get to hear Robin double tracking mm. as well, which yeah. is probably the first time we get, we get to hear this. I gained a house and part of it is yours. It don't just finish, it sort of fades out, doesn't it? Fairly quietly. Which is quite nice, because I think that's quite a good production technique, that it leads you quite nicely into the next track. 
which is what I like to hear anyway. I'm quite happy with the uh, um, run of the tracks on this. They all flow nicely into one another. There's, you wouldn't say there's too many ballads. They're all quite varied. It's quite nice now that we, we start to get the twins to appear a lot more. You won't be there If trouble fill my spoon I'm just a clown that plays around with misery in my wake Forgetting all the rules of love I I believe it's easier for them to leave Their problems in the arms of others Running to their mothers Lasting love is such a funny thing When you're in love, you're on the wings You're not in love, it's good for you Cause you can do the things you like to do It's your big chance So take it, baby It's your big and now for the last track on the side is Big Chance. This is one of my least favourites on the album. Whilst it's catchy, it doesn't really demonstrate anything new for the Bee Gees. It is a suitable end to side one, with the final Big Chance being repeated by all three brothers. I think nicely wrapping up proceedings and also beckoning the listener onto side two. It's amazing, isn't it? You, you write your notes miles away and I, I've done mine I've got here another jangly guitar it's an okay song not one of my favourites either but I do enjoy the vocal exchange between Barry and Robin and then Robin finishing I don't know why I bother myself and then he's the first one to lead the vocals into big chants as well so again as I say nice flow on that one again excellent singing on the chorus and this one was the B-side to Born a Man it got its big chance as a single. <laughs> big chance as the B-side. <laughs> Another one that went into obscurity. A bad chance. So with that then, shall we flip the album over? So we'll start with the hit single, Spicks and Specks. Take one. I've got this down as a solo composition from Barry, but it was later revealed that Morris had something to do with the construction of the song. So from there on, he was given co-composition credits for this. Well, Spicks and Specks, I think it goes without saying, is the definitive song of the Bee Gees' time in Australia. And it stayed with them, didn't it? Yeah. My favourite live version, I suppose the first time I heard a live version was on the Towers of the Brother Gibb, which was recorded, I think, in Melbourne in 89. And I just think it's fantastic. The way he, he sort of gets the song and he does not dissimilar words where he stops... You know, where are the girls bit? And then it's uproar. And then it's just the way it leads back in again. Thank you. 
Where is the girl? <laughs> loved all along The girl that I love She is gone She is gone All of my life I called yesterday The space and the space Of my life This could have found life in 1967 or 1968 on one of those other albums if they wanted it to. And I think with Spicks and Specks, Barry's pretty much nailed the formula for the hit. I say that, I can't quite work out what the formula is, but I think there's just something here. This song is the template for what they need to do. Whatever they find on Spicks and Specks, they then repeat with the likes of Lonely Days, You Win Again, etc. Mm. It's just got that thing to it. Well, it goes back to, you mentioned early on in the podcast about Rupert's People, where they were toying with names, and one of the names was Spicks and Specks. And then one of them said to the other brother, I think it might have been one of the twins said to Barry, that would make a good title for a song. And most of the song was written in 10 minutes. And I think they dismissed it, and they weren't even very keen on it. But it's, it's so simple that it's good. And I think what's so definitive about Spicks and Specks is that whereas in the past with the singles like Claustrophobia or Peace of Mind, which we felt were very Merseybeat influenced, or you get something like Little Miss Rhythm and Blues, which was very much Chuck Berry, Spicks and Specks is something that's totally unique. It's just the Bee Gees. If you were to read the lyrics in isolation with the music removed, you can still tell that it's the Bee Gees. You don't have to have heard the song. You can just look at those lyrics and and know straight away this is a Gibb composition. It's got something to it that I can't quite put my finger on. I can't quite define it or describe it, but it's there. The magic of the Bee Gees. Again, I think you've got a fantastic intro to to this song. I mean, straight away, you know what the song is. Same as with You Win Again. You know, sort of like... Pity. Oh yeah, Pity. One of my my favourites as well. They've nailed it, haven't they? And the melody of Spicks and Specks reminds me in parts of one of my favourite 1960s compositions, and that's Ralph McTell's Streets of London. Yeah. There's bits of it that I, I think are very similar. Oh, I've not picked up on that. But I, think I that do was, like that song. I think too. that was 67, so Spicks and Specks predates it. Oh, let me take you by the hand and lead you through the streets of London. I'll show you something. To make you change your mind All of my life I called yesterday The sticks and the spits of my life Gone away, everybody So it was actually released in Europe on Polydor, the label they signed to in the UK, on February the 24th, 1967. It was issued in many countries in Europe. Although it bombed in the UK, it fared better in Netherlands and West Germany. So this is far and away one of the highlights of their Australian music. The simplistic pounding piano notes which descend in contrast to Barry's ascending melody, the sing-along lyrics, the punchy brass stabs, makes this the perfect hit, or the perfect hit that never really was. And it's the perfect opener to side two on the album. This is really, really good stuff. 
and I think there's an orchestral version of it on the Melody soundtrack. found an article in Ghost Set magazine and it's written by Hugh Gibb while on the boat coming over. It's got Dear Ghost Set, on behalf of the Bee Gees I would like to thank you and your paper most sincerely for making their record Spicks and Specs your choice as best record of the year. We are only sorry that we did not have the time left to visit Melbourne again. I know that a lot of young fans there think the boys are heading for England on the strength of their current success, but I know that you all will appreciate the fact that our signing arrangements were made as far back as August in 66. Things are definitely progressing for the boys. We are expecting cables or mail at any of the ports we land in. So until we get official news, we are keeping pretty quiet, but we will contact you as soon as things break. Once again, many thanks and we wish you continued success with the paper. Please give our fondest regards to all the gang at GoSet. Yours sincerely, Hugh Gibb. Now, it's quite interesting because we, we hear all this about, the, as the beaches were on the boat, this was their first number one and everything. But I'll read you a passage from the BG's Decades and see what you think to this. Over the years, the brothers and many others have perpetuated the myth that Spicks and Specks was their first number one hit in Australia and that they received word of it after leaving Australia en route to the UK. This, however, is not correct as the single's peak placement on the Go Set magazine chart, which was Australia's national single survey at the time, was number four on the 9th of November 1966. The only evidence of it reaching the top spot anywhere in the country is on a regional chart in Canberra on the 23rd of November. The song was, however, a genuine number one single in New Zealand. But even that wasn't until the week of 19th of May 1967, when the Gibbs were already back in England and obviously working on the Bee Gees first. And I found a review in the UK, and this is also in um, March 1967, and it was in the NME. And they called Spicks and Specs a bit dated, but still thinking it very good indeed. Robin is, is given special mention for his vocals on the flip side, I Am The World. In the same issue, the paper's pop liners column noted Robert Stingwood of NEMS Enterprise has signed a four-piece Australian group, the Bee Gees, currently working in Britain, to a five-year agency contract. And it also mentions as well that they did quite a few promotional clips for the song they gave a stunning performance on it's all happening followed by a cover of the rolling stones air to time oh yeah the second track on side two is jingle jangle Supposedly, this is the song that attracted Robert Stigwood's attention from the demonstration tapes that Hugh sent over for him to listen to. Oh, that's interesting. Why? 
Robin sounds very emotional and exposed. But this is a Barry composition. Yeah. It proves what I was saying about how well Barry is starting now to compose his, his things towards Robin. And I said with Spicks and Specks that that was a highlight of the year, as is Jingle Jangle. This is another really top favourite of mine. Yeah. It's got a haunting quality and it's got sort of folk tinges. I've got Haunting Melody written down as well. And I've said that the lo-fi production quality actually suits this composition really well with the plucked guitar strings and the ethereal harmonies. It just sounds like nothing else that they'd recorded up to this point. I suppose you could maybe see elements of it later on with every Christian lion-hearted man. Yeah, I I was thinking more of of the sort of I started a joke, Mm -hmm. that sort of songs. It's quite interesting to hear this style of song composed by Barry. Proves that they're both able to to come out with this sort of melodic flow of a song. I'm always a bit thrown, actually, this one, because when I listened to the intro, there was a song I remember my cousin having, and it's by Dave D, Dozy Beak and Mick and Titch. There's seven of them, obviously, all, all, the, all their names. And it's a song called Bend It. So every time I hear this this intro, I always want to go into the bend it, bend it part of the song. Yeah. Because, I mean, it was used when we was at school for different connotations, but, uh, um, yeah. And then obviously when Robin hits in with, with, with this, it's a totally different song, not at yeah. all like Bend It, but it's just that initial intro again. And again, we're finding, aren't we, on this album, where the intros are really a trademark of this. Yes, it's really dry, closely mic'd guitar intro. And what do you make of the later live performances in the early 70s? Yeah, I think it was about 71, wasn't it, we discussed it? Yeah. What I like about the 71 performance is you get to hear Robin, I know it's only sort of five years away from this, but a more mature, confident singer that can fit into this so easily. And it proves that these songs from 1966 can stand the test of time just as well as the songs from 67 or 68. And the clip I saw, is it's actually quite a phenomenal performance by Robin, actually. I mean, it's a pity, again, that they can't release some of these official recordings because they are so, they're so good. Now that she's found love, I still hear the sound of silvery bangles that So, track three on side two, we've come to A Tint of Blue. A tint of blue Deep down inside my heart Each time I see you It will take a lot to ease my pain From all these chains A tint of red each time I see you with another Just because I was your lover Jealous I 
Despite the rest of my opinions on this song, this is remarkable for one reason, and it's because I've found that it's the first co-write between Barry and Robin. The start of what I think would go on to be one of the strongest co-writing collaborations in popular music history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- you go to say that, and I don't think they get the credit they deserve. No. You know, it's Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards from the Stones... But I, I think these are up there with the Beatles, to be honest with you. I just think they, they are so underrated as a pair. It's just phenomenal what they were coming out with. Saying all of that, <laughs> this one being the first, it does sound like a leftover from the Beatles' help. You're right, it does. That's what I put on my notes, actually. And then also looking in the Decades book, they have quite similar opinions to us as well. Yeah. But I think it's one of the few times now we'll get these comparisons to Beatles and past, I think is now gradually diminishing. Diminishing, but it does remain, I think, up until about 1973, 1972. There's always one song on every album that I think is like a Beatles pastiche. For example, Bad Bad Dreams on To Whom It May Concern, In My Own Time from Bee Gees First. There's always that one song. But as you said, by 66, it's definitely diminished. You've got to understand that obviously the Beatles were at their peak in 66, ready for, you know, they've had Revolver and they're leading into Sgt Pepper. So it's obvious, it's not just the Bee Gees, it, it, it was a lot of groups that were influenced by it. I mean, they all were able then to spend more time in the studio and, you know, elaborate on their, on their compositions and, and especially obviously this competition, as we mentioned earlier, between the Beatles and... The Beach Boys, where obviously Brian Wilson had heard Rubber Soul, which made him go and write um, Pet Sounds. Then he hears Rubber Soul, and then he starts working on Smile, which obviously evolved and didn't evolve, because obviously it was never released until many years later. I think it just yielded, I think, um, Good Vibrations. Mm -hmm. And Heroes and Villains, I think, might have been the only two. I think a couple of songs were released on later albums, like Surf's Up, which is again another one of my favourites. Whether they were feeling their way around on this song, I don't know. Going back to what we were saying about instrumental solos with some of the, these previous songs, I'm not so keen on the harmonica organ solo that we get here. I think it cheapens the song, and I, I think that something else could have happened there. Well, I think had it been had they had the money, you might have been experimenting with with orchestral arrangements, yeah. which is obviously what they did a year later. You've got to bear in mind they were working on basic equipment, so you you look you're getting the sound that that was available. But yeah, I agree with you, actually. I, I'm not a big fan of it. And as I say, this song is, is, is OK. So now we come to track four, or should I say track <laughs> Track four, and this is called Where Are You? I'm here. <laughs> Put 
So we just had a first with Tint of Blue with the first Robin and Barry composition that we know of. And we come to another very notable first. Where Are You is the first song that we know of that is a lead vocal from Morris and a first composition from Morris. Yeah, and I've got to say that I think he outshines Robin. This is a really good, just an early Morris song. But you listen to this and already you can hear the loner. Yeah, it's got a really good arrangement and how the vocals intertwine with the arrangement. I think, I think this, is, this is an excellent composition. I just think that Morris's style and flair are on display right from the beginning. And in that subject matter about abandonment coupled with the murky, swampy arrangement, yeah, it's paving the way for Morris's solo work from sort of 69 to 71. Again, this is another song that ends rather abruptly. It would benefit from a bridge, extra verse, etc. And I think whilst in the context of the album, this might not be a standout song, definitely not in comparison to Jingle Jangle or Spicks and Specks, I think it has enough of its own merits. And it's clear to see that Morris really has benefited from that extra time in the studio. Oh, I think I think so. And it's quite interesting when you look at the who's composed what. It was actually Barry and Morris were the two most prolific songwriters of 66. It's not to say that Robin was any less productive, whereas I think Robin was probably all over everybody else's work, contributing in ways that we might not even hear when we're listening to the songs, but he, I get the impression that he's all over them. The only disappointment I've got, I would have liked to have heard a, a Barry and Morris co-lead or the Twins co-lead. Yeah. We never really get that, do we, in the 60s? It's only when we, we went on the... Um, the 1970 stuff, where you got uh, Morris and um, Robin working together after the split. We Can Conquer the World, yeah. two years on. It's a long time before we're going to get round to covering this song, so I'll give some of my thoughts on it now. But there is one of my absolute favourite Bee Gees songs from 1997, and it's one of the B-sides from Still Waters, and it's called Love Never Dies. Oh, OK. It's one of my favourite Bee Gees songs. It's Robin and Morris, and they are alternating between vocals between the two of them, and it's sublime yeah. so that that collaboration i think had the potential to be just as good as for instance robin and barry i think that was an avenue they never really went into did they whether because barry was was such a influence on the on the group saying that if you look at the three solo robin albums from the 80s a majority of That's those true. is they're, morris they're, and robin yeah i assume because they were they were credited as morris oh, sorry as robin's solo albums it was Robin that got the, the vocals. It's quite interesting, actually, that this was given to an Australian pop star called Mike Ferber in 1967, who released it as an A-side. So obviously he was impressed with this. And then he uses Barry's Secondhand People as the B-side. So it's quite impressive, isn't it, that Morris's first composition gets to be sung by somebody else and they prefer that to one of Barry's second-hand people. Another penultimate track we've got is Born a Man. And I didn't know My daddy put me on his knee And showed me the way to go 
He said, a woman will do her best to make a fool out of you. So be in there and stand the test and see what you can do. To me, this sounds like a cross between the animals and the who. It's a territory of song that I don't think we've heard Barry's vocals on, have we? It's got a far more rockier band, live edge feel to it. His vocals are rougher. He wanted probably think add a bit more edge to his composition. And it stands out like a sore thumb on this album as something totally different. Personally, I don't think it's for all the right reasons. I think he would go on to work better songs like this, like Who Knows What A Room Is. I was just about to say that. Yeah. End of My Song. Yeah. That type of stuff. But like anything, you've got to start somewhere. And I don't really think he even gave any compositions away that was that was like this. I found that the Decades book, the writer in there, summarised Borneman perfectly, saying, an interesting experiment but the result is messy. And, that, and that's how I hear this. It's a, it's trying to be something, i.e. who knows what a room is, but it just hasn't quite gotten there yet. And I think that you neatly summarised it with what you just said about this is the beginning of that development of songwriting style. But it does display a great range of Barry's vocals as he alternates effortlessly from head to chest voice already from such a young age. And also, I don't know whether you know, but Born a Man was the last Bee Gees single to be released only in Australia, and the single, with Big Chance as the B-side, was released in February 1967, after the brothers had already returned to the UK. So, there's no, there's no, so obviously this must have sank, which is a shame, really, because after the, the success of Speaks, they're not there to promote it, are they? There's going to be no live TV shows with them being able to promote it, and it wouldn't have been promoted in the UK because it's Australia only, so yeah, it just would have sank without trace. Good choice of a single? I don't think so. I mean, there are far better songs that even Where Are You yeah. would have made it a good choice of a single. With that then, shall we go on to the last track, which is called... Glass House The ones with mine The sun will shine I like this, but I wasn't so keen. It wasn't one that hit me straight away. But this one really does improve with the amount of listens. I like it and it's got a change of tempo. And we mentioned all the way back in the early, I think it was Bee Gees first, about Noel Gallagher being influenced, like, really like early Bee Gees. And I feel this song, I can imagine Noel giving a good lead vocal on. And then especially when the instrumental part comes in, 
I just think it sounds like the brothers are having good fun on this. Shortly after we recorded our episode on A Kick in the Head is Worth Hating the Pants, we had an email in from Mark Austin, and he was just detailing his thoughts on a few of the songs from A Kick in the Head. Oh, yeah, I remember you telling me this, yeah. And he said that Losers and Lovers has echoes of Glass House. And ever since then, ever since we received that email, every time I've been listening to Glass House, I've been going in with that mindset and thinking to myself, can I hear Rocky LA? And I sort of can in the kind of tempo and rhythm of it. I'm not quite hearing probably what Mark's hearing, but I thought it was fascinating that he drew that connection. Well, I like it when people correspond with us and they attach songs to previous songs. Yeah. Because it makes you go back and listen to them in a different, you know, different perspective. Absolutely. Thinking, well, how are they listening to this song? And I agree with you as well that it's um, it's an interesting composition and, and one that obviously Mark feels has got quite similarities between one of my favourite songs from Kicking the Head. Would you say Lovers and... Lo- yeah. Yeah, one of my favourites. So, Glass House is another Barry and Robin composition. It's got a good swing feel to it. I think it's an rather unceremonious but appropriate closing track for Spicks and Specks. If only for the final lyric, it's ours, my love, until the day we say, Alfie de Sen. Yeah, put, that's true, because on my notes I've got it, I've got quite a quirky ending. Yeah, and I think that Glass House is another example of a unique BG sound. It sounds like very little else in their catalogue maybe Losers and Lovers, and it isn't a pastiche or tribute to another artist. So it, it, I feel like it's one of those songs that I still quite haven't formed my opinion fully on it. It, it might be in a, a week, a month or 10 years time that I'll finally be able to figure out my true thoughts on this song. The day we The album Spicks and Specs would go on to be released in November. So then going into June and July, there's a lot more productivity throughout these months with further recording at Sinclair Studio. And the next recording that we have is I Am The World. say that this is my favourite Robin composition of the Australian era. I would probably also go as far to say that this might be my favourite song of the Australian years. I'm saying that with the context of knowing the version from St Catherine's Drive and I find that album quite a tough listen because I find it a very sad listen and this song in particular Listening to this version where Robin's 16 and then listening to that version from... Well, it's 40 years difference, Chris, isn't it? I think it was about 2009, 2008 yeah. that he, re- he revisited that. And it's just one of those goosebump songs. It 
chokes me up every time I hear it, and it's it's a it's a beautiful composition, and and I I love the later version as much as I love this original. I do. Just a sidestep on that one. It's very interesting on that album. He dips into this. He dips into Sing Slow to Sisters. Yeah. And I love it that that whether he had a sixth sense, I don't know. But how he's he's like gone full circle. He's picked one of his first compositions and he's gone to work on that. He's then picked an unreleased composition and he's gone to work on that as well. Yeah. In the ideal world, I would have liked... I'm fine with this one, but in the ideal world, I would have liked the original Sing Slowly Sisters redone as it was in 1970. Yeah, I don't yeah. think it needed anything doing to it, but it's brilliant that we're able to hear his interpretation of what he thought it could have gone into. I just think that Robin's vocals in the chorus are captivating, especially that moment when his voice shifts when he says, I am the world, and, and it just takes it to a different level. Soars, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, it's very original. Very original composition, this one. It's crying out for a, for a Bill Shepard arrangement on yeah. this. Yeah. And it would have been one of the highlights on Bee Gees first, without a doubt. This is just one of those Gibbs songs that, I've had it before. I had it with Home Again Rivers, where I, I was just so awestruck that I, I struggled to think of other things to say. Well, you can't, can you? Because sometimes music speaks for itself, doesn't it? Yeah. On June the 24th, Masters are done for Monday's Rain at St. Clair's studio. And the album is temporarily shelved. And then while this is all happening, they go on to record quite a few other songs. There's Exit Stage Right, Like Nobody Else, Top Pack, Coleman, Morning of My Life, as well as Morris's All By Myself and Robin's Lum De Lou. <laughs> OK, can't wait till that one comes up. Also during this period, the brothers pen and record their first ever three-way compositions, The Storm, Butterfly, Terrible Way to Treat Your Baby, I'll Know What to Do, and Forever. They're very productive. Yeah. So I thought what we'll do then, Chris, we'll go through them other extra tracks. I think there's a little bit of a story to these, is that in 1970, there was an album released, I believe in Germany, and what it does, it gathers up a collection of songs from 66. So it's a mixed collection of 24 self-penned compositions and cover versions. I presume it's like a follow-up to Rare, Precious and Beautiful albums that came out in 60, 68, 69. And so it gathers a lot of, lot of songs that people have never heard of. In fact, it wasn't until Morris went on holiday with Ringo Starr and their wives and they went skiing in Switzerland and Ringo chanced upon the album in a shop. Pointing out to Morris, Ringo commented that he'd never seen that one before. Up until that moment, neither had Morris. <laughs> that is just typical. Yeah. The new songs were written either individually or as the three of them. An acetate produced in London exists with the following track set list. So you've got All the King's Horses, Top Hat, Coleman, I'll Know What To Do, 
in the morning all by myself. And then you flip it over and you've got exit stage right, butterfly, house of lords, terrible way to treat your baby, lum de and like nobody else. There are two other songs from this batch that are known to exist. The Walker Brothers, Another Tear Falls and the Beatles song, If I Needed Someone. But these remain unreleased. I think we're finding with these next batch of songs, we're getting the Bee Gees finding their own identity even more so. Because there's there's nothing that I can see really that they particularly gave away. I mean, so far now we've covered all these songs. There's only neither rich nor poor. But these songs are all very interesting, these next 10, 12 songs that we're going to go through, because I, I was listening to them and I was wondering, were these composed and recorded with the intention of going onto an album, or were they recorded purely for the sake of recording? Were they recorded because they, because they could, because they had the studio, they had the time, and they had the knack for writing non-stop? I think they were just writing for writing's sake. I think they were in them studios, as, as we said, Robin said they was in there 24-7. So I think the songs just came pouring out of them. And I think it was just a case of stockpiling stuff up, whether they use it for an album, whether they decide then, yes, we're going to give this to another unknown singer, another Jenny Bradley, which I don't think so in any of these. You know, there's, there's people, and I, and I assume in the end, when they came to the UK... All these songs must have been put on like a publishing disc or something and sent out to all the people and say, well, look, here's some songs. They've had success with Spicks and Specs. These are the next bunch of songs. Pick which ones you want sort of thing, near enough. As far as songs go, I think it's probably a stronger set. Do you think than Spicks and Specs? Yes and no. It could have contributed towards a second album or if they were going to be so progressive. Because Spicks and Specs wasn't released until November, it could have just been a double album. Yeah. I assume Spicks and Specs was already ready to go, just to mean swapping over two tracks. Um, so, I mean, that, that was obviously held back from April, May, and then not released till November. And then I assume then it got these stuff done, and then obviously the chance to come to the UK, that then changed their mindset. But I think, you know, I go about a stronger set of songs. I mean, any album that includes In the Morning, Butterfly, it's got to be top tier. Top tier, isn't it? Top hat, as the uh, <laughs> as we'll come to. So the first one I've got on my list is a song called The Storm. Also known as Waiting in the Storm. Oh, OK. And this is Barry, Robin and Morris. So the first trio composition that we've come across. Can you hear me? Are you near me? Can you see me? See me at all Do you know me Can you show me If you hear me Don't let me fall Is it raining Ain't no sunshine And the wind blows In my eyes Lying face down To the hot ground I can face the cloudy skies. Well, I've got excellent song with another incredible Robin vocal. Again, he sings so passionate and heartfelt. With this song, I've come up with my own little theory that may or may not change the entire perceived narrative of the Bee Gees' music. Imagine that the protagonist of this song, who's in the storm, is the same character from the song Odessa. 
Oh, okay. Because you've got the metaphor of the sailor who's lost their love and who's entering stormy seas. So I thought maybe there's some sort of edit in an alternate universe where you could slip this song in to the middle of Odessa. I don't know. But I think that this kind of subject matter is the perfect match for Robin's bittersweet voice. And I think that regardless of the lyrics, his voice just draws a sense of sympathy from the listener. And we see this at the absolute finest. We saw it on I Am The World. We see it again on I Started A Joke, Home Again Rivers, etc. Quite a lot on Odessa. Exactly. Are you near me in the storm? So next on the list, I've got Exit Stage Right. Yet again, I've got down here another excellent song. Pity more work wasn't done on it. I bet this would have sounded great live. Like yourself, I really like Exit Stage, right? See, this is where I've, I fell into a real conundrum when doing the research for this episode. And I, and I was trying to add dates together and things weren't matching up. So immediately I picked up very John Lennon vocals from Barry. And this sounds very reminiscent to that sound of Taxman. But looking at the dates, the Bee Gees couldn't have heard Taxman when they were recording this because... It's July, June, July. And, that, and Taxman was released in August. Yeah. But it's fascinating that they were working with the same mentality. And I'm wondering whether whether a lot of these songs, they wrote them, they were thinking of taking them with them. Do you think they had Bill Shepard in their mind then? They enjoyed working with him in 65. He'd gone to the UK. We're going to go to the UK. Or we'd like to go to the UK. We'll, we'll grab all these songs and we'll take them with us. I'm wondering whether, say, these set of songs, they were there if anybody wanted to listen to them. So the next one I've got on my list is another 66 highlight, and that's called Butterfly. first line of my notes is that this is the first BRM classic and there's a reason why a lyric from this song went on to title Barry's most recent album Greenfields. Yeah and I wonder how many people who brought Greenfields realised that this was a Australian recording from 66. 
because that album has got the usual big BG standards, but it's it's also got things like Words of a Fool. So I just get the impression that anyone who didn't know anything that wasn't one of the big hitters like How Deep Is Your Love, they would have just thought this is from somewhere else in his back catalogue. Yeah, new composition. Yeah, new composition, or it's just an older song, regardless of whether it was from Australia, whether it was from the 80s, whether it was from the 70s. Is that one of the things that attracted you into buying Greenfields? Yes. And I think you'll probably find that with most collectors, it, it's getting stuff that we haven't heard before. Yeah. I don't mean like rehash of hits. I mean songs that, like we said about Robin and Iron World, it's quite coincidental then we get Barry doing Butterfly. Yeah. You buy that for that reasons, and then as you just said, words of a fool... I mean, I've got a really poor quality of that one from about 85, 86. So to be able to hear that song, top-notch quality, it, it, it makes all the difference. I think it was the perfect choice of song for him to revisit with the context of what Greenfields is, where it's Barry looking back over his body of work. I think to have Barry in his mid-70s with a song like Butterfly, which is a song about nostalgia, sentimentality and reflection, works perfectly. And that's what surprised me with this song, because it's it's so sentimental with lyrics like we would play there beneath the sky and green fields where we used to wander purple valleys near my home for Barry to have written this before they'd even left Australia Mm. and to already be nostalgic about early years in Australia. I don't think you'd be describing Manchester, do you? (laughs) (laughs) But it actually closes the 2020 documentary. Yeah. Very nicely. I think this is a wonderful song, autobiographical lyrics and I would put Butterfly in the same tier of songwriting as In the Morning of My Life. I would. This song was actually covered by a group called Marmalade and I listened to it recently and I think it's it's a really good version. It's got a good orchestral score on it I don't know if you're aware, but this is one of my singles that I had brought for me in 68 when they covered the Beatles' Obla Dee Obla Da. Because I didn't know it was the Beatles, so I just thought it was Marmalade. They do some really good singles in the late 60s. With that, Chris, the next track I've got, I think, is another BRM composition called Terrible Way to Treat Your Baby. Well, I think with this one, we're now going into Walker Brothers territory. Um, Scott Walker sounds quite similar to the, the vocal arrangement on Robin. You've lost that loving feeling. That's it. I knew I was. it reminded me of a song. I mean, all, all this needs is a 
cracking Phil Spector production. It's got a fantastic chorus. Yeah. I think the verse is okay, but the chorus, wow, that could be taken out and put somewhere else. It almost doesn't sound like Robin. Well, he sings so deep, doesn't he? Yeah. But then it does blend well with Barry's much higher register. It's such a dichotomy of, of sounds where you've got Robin's baritone vibrato is so low down and yet you can get Barry with his high head voice but somehow they work so well together. With Barry's vocal, I think it's absolutely stunning around two minutes into the song. The chorus screams huge hit. Saying that, I do find that this is the one song of 1966 that reminds me most of their work from 64-65. When they had those singles in 65 where they were covering other artists' compositions as the A-side, this type of song reminds me of that style. But I suppose you're not really used to Scott Walker Brothers ones. Have you heard it, no? Or are you more used to probably, is it the Hall & Oates, You've Lost That Loving Feeling? Yes. Yeah, don't stray into the Silla Black version, but... um... (laughs) The Hall Notes is, is a good version as well. Somehow I get the feeling that you're going to be far less positive about the next composition, which is Robin's Lum-de-doo. Do we have to? I'm going to hold up the flag for this song because I do quite like it a lot. I think it's a playful composition from Robin and mostly I can just hear that he's having fun. It's difficult to tell actually who's doing the lum doos I can Sometimes I listen to it and I think that must be Morris. Other times I do think with the vocal that he was giving for Terrible Way to Treat Your Baby that it could actually be Robin. Is it a Robin solo composition, this one? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. The other one's denied all knowledge of it, I should I <laughs> I can't really detect Barry on the record, but definitely Morris. Definitely I think not. Morris must have been all over it. I, I don't think it's a bad song. I think that with the lyrics and with the inclusion of the harmonica, I hear this as being based in the Old West, and I'll read out some of the lyrics. I am respected. I am detested. What they really don't know is, I shot a man in Ellenburg long, long time ago. Lum-dee-dum-dee-doo. Well, I'll be a lawman's piece of cake. Lum-dee-lum-dee-doo. But before they get me... My life, I'll take. Okay. Well, Ellenberg is in New York. And so I'm wondering, it could be that after the protagonist shot a man in Ellenberg, that they then travelled over to the west of America and became a figure of both respect and controversy. When I first heard this, I didn't realise it was it was a 66 recording. I thought it was from the soundtrack from the Muppets. You know, I could imagine him singing it with the Muppets in the background doing the, the backing vocals and all that sort of stuff. So it really surprised me that, that it went back to 66. But I'll be honest with you, th- for me, this is the worst song of 66 that they would put their names to. This is one I do press the skip button, or if in Australia, the skippy button. Given that this is a song that was never appeared, that never appeared on a single, never appeared on an album, and what I think is just 
Robin let loose in the studio and just Robin being Robin. You know, this is the same the same person who then does, again, another song I know you're, that you're not so keen on, Deeply, Deeply Me. Would you think, like Deeply, Deeply Me, this was never, ever intended to be heard outside the studio? Yeah, probably not. But then again, it's on that, I mentioned, it's on that acetate, which threw me. Because I thought, when I first heard this and obviously realised it was them, I assumed it was like Deeply, Deeply Me or... Mr. The, Wallace Whaling Moore. Yeah, is it the... What's the one uncomplete song? Un, unoriginal. Yeah, completely unoriginal. Yeah. Which was just them having fun in the studio, messing around in between takes or getting inspiration for the next song. So I think we'll quickly move on. And the next one I've got, Dan, is a track called Like Nobody Else. Like Lumdy Doo, I find this to be the Bee Gees let loose in the studio. And I think that whereas in 1965, Like Nobody Else would have been recorded as a straight rock and roll number in the style of Little Miss Rhythm and Blues, or To Be or Not To Be, now that they have their own studio space and they've got the time to experiment, I think that the brothers are really playing around with the vocal techniques such as using the voice to emulate instruments. And again, the sounds of Waller's Wailing Wall are starting to emerge here. It's okay. And and again, it goes back to what we said on previous songs. They were just messing around in the studio. Yeah. Seeing what they could come up with. I mean, that bit with Robin. I mean, I don't know whether he's he's doing his voice, but it just sounds like he's gargling water. (laughs) Probably was. Yeah, probably was actually. Yeah, Yeah. if they're they're above a butcher's. Yeah. Chop, chop. So up next, I've got All the King's Horses. All the King's Horses and all the King's Men Couldn't put me back together again My heart lies in pieces all over the ground Who's gonna help me when you're not around? And I know inside me that nobody The only thing is, with all the King's Horses, it's a really poor quality bootleg. Mm. But these songs were covered, you see. So I think by you'll find that I think the singer we've mentioned numerous times, Ronnie Burns. Does he? So, <laughs> so he takes a lot. He takes a lot of these songs. It never gets any less funny. <laughs> he takes a lot of these songs, and I think he keeps the same backing track and just puts his own vocals. So if you listen to his version of all the King's Horses, you can actually hear. You know, if you. Put the Bee Gees voices on top. It gives you a good idea of what um, what it would have sounded like. Oh, 
it's got Beach Boys-esque harmonies. I think there's there's merits to it. This sounds like the basis for what could be a far grander song. And they're using the story or the metaphor of Humpty Dumpty to represent lost love. But there's no resolution to the story. What I can hear, I think it sounds like Robin on lead vocal. See, I thought it was Barry. I've leaned more towards Robin on this, but I'll probably have to give it another another listen again. But as you say, because it's such a low-fi quality and it's one of the songs that escaped brilliant from birth but as i mentioned earlier it's one of the songs that um, was sent on to robert stigwood they obviously must have liked this one you got these sort of songs like all the king's horses house of lords house of lords exactly gilbert green they're they're of an ill can't they yes i don't know what it is i know what no i don't i mean nobody else was writing stuff like this would you say it's a bit more baroque yes i would do actually I know exactly what you mean. There's something, there's a quality about them, which I like. And it's strange that it was kind of like an abandoned style because the songs, they weren't used on Bee Gees first. So it's like they tried it, didn't quite Was it Ten of Tuxley Part 1 or something? Don't they have Part 2 ever existed? No. Though no, they did do Gilbert Green Live in 67. I kind of get the impression that if they wanted to, in 67, instead of going for the psychedelic... Bee Gees first, if they wanted to pursue a bit more of a kinks or very English album, you could have had things like House of Lords, All the King's Horses, Gilbert Green. But yeah, I, I like this one. After that lo fi one, we now come to a bit better quality sound wise, don't know about composition, and that's called Top Hat. Just a thought It's a drag to leave my door Guess I'll have to say I'll just cry my life away I'll buy a top hat To brighten up my lonely life And they can see that I've got the money for the things Money brings Again, this is another very playful song with a bouncy tune to it, playful production. I love the spoken word that we hear between Barry and Robin at the end, or it's either Robin or Morris. And that Taxman bass line, which again precedes Taxman, so I'm not sure about the chronology of this. I've not got a lot on this one, Chris. I've put my notes down here. Quite a decent song, one for the collection. Would make an ideal B-side. Yeah. And it could have easily been on one of those unreleased B-sides from Bee Gees first, Horizontal Idea. Now, while we're on this one, I thought, there were, we, we mentioned quite a few times Ronnie Burns, and he actually did release an album on the Spin label in July 67. And of all these songs that we're talking about, he actually covers eight of them. So he does Top Hat, which we're now discussing, and that was track one on his album. Track three, he does Exit Stage Right. Yeah. And it's a 14-track album. And so track seven on side one is Coleman. Then you flip it over. And he's obviously gone then for really good ones. So he starts track one off with Butterfly. He then does Morning of My Life. He then goes track three is All the King's Horses. Track five is I'll Know What to Do. And track seven is Terrible Way to Treat Your Baby. 
So he, he must have been in heaven, knowing that he's been given songs like Butterfly, Morning My Life, that the Bee Gees have left behind. He goes on to have a hit with Coleman. Yeah, in fact, it was released with all the King's Horses of the B-side, and it was actually put out in 1966, in December 66. So he obviously grabbed hold of these songs quite quickly, because obviously the brothers were on the boat, at the, or about to go on the boat. So they must, they must have give, given him their consent to do all these. So it goes back to what we said a few songs back. Had they given up on these songs releasing themselves? Unless they thought he, him releasing this in December in Australia wasn't going to affect what they were going to put out in the UK in 67. Well, to be honest, I kind of wonder whether the Bee Gees even knew. Because if, it's, if these are songs that belong to Spin Records... Do the Bee Gees actually have to get involved if another artist is then going to cover these songs because they're, 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 they're sat under the same label? Yeah, that's true. And I don't think that by 67, the brothers were so busy with their new work that if they'd have received a letter or a phone call from Spin saying, do you mind it or what do you feel about these songs being given to this other artist? They'd probably just thought, you know what, we're, Let not, it get on with it. we're not doing anything with it. Yeah. And it gives us a bit of revenue. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about revenue, <laughs> at the end of uh, Top Hat, we hear in the conversation between Barry and Robin or Morris, we hear that the Top Hat is priced at three shillings and six pence. Now, do you know what that converts to in today's British currency? Three shillings. Well, a shilling was equivalent. It was 12 pennies to a shilling, I remember. Um, And then there was two and a half pennies to a one penny. So about 5p, roughly. It all works out to 18 pence. Yeah, so three fives, 15 plus the bit. Yeah, so... Oh, okay. Well done. That's the the old memory ticking back, that one. 18 pence for a... Top hat. Pretty good deal, I think. So with that, we go on to the next composition, as we've just spoken about, Coleman. I tell my troubles to the Coleman, he's a Coleman, but he understands. He's not such a very, very old man, he's a soul man, and he takes my It's difficult to hear this song opening with backwards tape and not immediately thinking of Paperback Writer and Rain. I've just recently brought the Revolver Deluxe set. Yeah. And that's what I've put on here. Do you think the beginning resembles Rain? Now, I think this brings us on to quite an interesting point because whereas the Beatles in 1966 have Taxman, which was a very contemporary song about Labour government and taxes, etc. Here we have Coleman, And I was doing a little bit of research and I did find that in the 60s and 70s there was a real growth and expansion of Australia's mining industry. So I kind of get the impression that to listeners in Australia in 1966, 
to be talking about a Coleman would have had the same impact as talking about taxmen in England. Oh, okay, in that's, that's, that's a good um, link, isn't it? I've got this down as an excellent composition. It is good. It's up there with the best of 66. Would you say that this is exit stage right done properly? Yeah, I think so. And I think this has got a really great middle section, which gives the song a little breather, but it still retains the up-tempo rhythm. And I think this would have worked well with somebody like the Hollies, because it reminds me a little bit of their song Bus Stop. And if they were looking for a follow-up one, but um, you know, Bus Stop, No Milk Today, which are both Graham Goldman songs... Um, I think that this this would have worked really well for them. Have you ever considered listening to more of Graham Goldman? <laughs> I, th- I think you might like his stuff. It just gets me how, how it, it, they can just turn out these songs that are so catchy and commercial and then just wash them away. It, it's just remarkable. It's like record all of these songs and then literally leave them on the other side of the world. Thinking, oh, I'm bothered with that one. I mean, if you imagine if you come up with a song like Coleman, you'd be one to go and flush it around with everybody, wouldn't you? Well, if my man's a dustman, I'd settle for that one. <laughs> And the next one I've got is I'll Know What To Do. Again, inspired by rain. But I I do think that Morris must have had such a great creative input on all of these songs that we've been speaking about the last few songs. Because his McCartney-inspired bass work drives the rhythm of all of these songs. I I just get the impression that he must have been a really big influence on the the construction and production of all of these sort of later June 66 recordings. I mean, this one, I've got echoes of Like Nobody Else. Yes. Quite a primitive sound on this but when you think 66 this is like a million years from three kisses of love from 63 we don't get that many ballads do we that they sing themselves okay you've got butterfly you got in the morning terrible way to treat your baby yeah but there's nothing you know we i'm talking 45 plus compositions of which they sang quite a lot themselves. There's a few they gave away, which you could put in the ballad territory. Mm. But regarding singing themselves, there's not that many out-and-out ballads. So I think I think they were definitely influenced by what was going on in 66 with everybody else. I don't remember the charts that much of 66, so I can't honestly say what the whole scene was. I think it's an OK song. Like you say, it's influenced by Revolver. But I don't think they've, at this time, I don't think they've nailed this style of song yet. I think they need a third party to come in and and push them into different directions. 
By this point in 1966, now that we've almost completed all of their Australian recordings, it's making so much sense to me why on the back cover of To Whom It May Concern, they put inset images of the Bee Gees when they were 13, 14 years old. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Because the music that we've been looking at across 1964, 65, 66, is very reminiscent of the type of music that is all throughout To Whom It May Concern. The eclecticism, the variety, the Beatles pastiche. It's probably their most sort of 60-ish sounding album of the 70s, isn't it? Well, Morris did say about that album that they were drawing back to really old compositions, but I know that you disputed that because you could see that most of the songs were written 71, 72. But I think he was referring at the time to songs that they pulled prior to the album. They started writing for the album in 71, didn't they? Well, obviously, as we said, they were doing Jingle Jangle, More In My Life, Don't Forget Me Ida. So, yeah, I th- I can see where he's coming from. Well, next up, we have another Morris composition. And this might be my favourite of Morris's solo work from 66. And this is called... All by myself. I know my street, that's where I live. I never take, I always give. They always need me on the shelf. I live my life all by myself. My car ain't big, I can't go fast. But every drink I take's the last. Yeah, I've got Dan in another cracking Morris composition. This goes back to what I say every three or four songs that pops a classic. <laughs> Morris was on was on fire with his um, songs. The Decades book, I'll read it apart from what they say in it. They say, All By Myself has great rhythmic bounce that's quite infectious. I sometimes do wonder with these Morris songs. You and I really tend to favour them every time. But is that because, simply because... To have Morris on lead vocal is just difference. It makes a nice difference to Barry's vocal. I sometimes wonder if Barry was singing All By Myself or any other Morris song, would we think of them as highly? Yeah. Do you think that the, the, they, they stand out because of the writing, because of Morris's performance, or is it just sort of everything? Well, on a personal level, it's it's got to be the, the melodic sound of the record in the first place, the tune. And I thought, oh, I really like that tune. So... That's my initial thing. Because if I don't like the tune, it doesn't really go. It doesn't matter who's singing it. Yeah. I personally w- would go on the quality of the composition, what I like. And as I say, this one and Where Are You yeah, are really good um, Morris compositions. Again, the subject matter of being a loner, precursing his solo work. Yeah, that's true. And then talking about really good tunes and earworm melodies brings us on to the last song of today's episode. Well, this I know what you're going to say. Is it forever? It is. This is so frustrating. When I started revising or listening to all these songs for these episodes, I put it on, on it comes, and I thought, I've heard this before. And even now, I can't think where I've heard it before, whether it's been on a TV programme, but it just sounded so familiar. Mm. 
I know it, it, it was covered, I think, by Dave Berry, who did The Crying Game in sort of 65, 66. Whether it's his version I've subconsciously heard somewhere. This is a really good song, isn't it? It is. It is a three-way composition. And the, the, the bit that you think you've heard before, is it the opening descending <laughs> piano? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do like the way that that descends but then the I don't know what would you say is it the the middle section the middle eight when the city lights are turning down that it then the melody ascends and instead we go so it's going up in comparison to the piano which is going down this is a really good song I just think another excellent intro again to a song it just bugs me that I've heard it somewhere and I just can't think where I've heard it I do like the trumpet playing that we get, the melancholic trumpet played by Jeff Grant. It gives the whole song a bit of a, I think, a music hall flavour. I wonder whether this was intended to be, a, they were going to release as a single or worked on it as a, as a single. Or was it taken to another, the, was it taken to another studio and, and, an, and the orchestra part was dubbed onto it? I mean, as you say, it's a style we haven't really heard the Bee Gees do yet. Do you think it's got a little bit of a sound to it of the types of programs that were being shown in Britain in the sort of sixties and seventies? Yeah. Those those kind of dramas, soap operas. Yeah, it could be one of those the kitchen sink dramas. Yeah, the melancholy of that. It, it does give it that <clears throat> that sense of melodrama, kitchen sink drama. They do these dramas about a family in in a coal mine in village yeah with the well obviously yeah with the coal man you got these um brass bands like is it the black dyke band or something is it yes yeah which track is it there there on back to the egg isn't it the last track isn't it baby's request yeah oh that's them and they yeah again similar flavor to baby's request yeah. this one no if anybody's not heard this one it, it definitely dig it out and if anyone has heard it and knows what it sounds like please let us know yeah. So I think, Chris, that covers everything by the Bee Gees themselves. And it, it nicely takes us to the middle of 1966 and to the end of this. Well, this is part three, but this is the first part of our look at 1966. Because there's still a lot of recordings that we haven't covered that we will be going through. Loads. Yeah. So we'll be going through all of those, plus all of the covers of other artists' work in the next episode in which we conclude our journey through the Australian material. So on that note, it's goodbye from him. And it's goodbye from him. (laughs) Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Words, the Bee Gees podcast, presented by Stuart and Cristiano Jepson. Follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram 
at wordsbeechiespodcast and on Twitter at wordsbeechiespod. Or, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at wordsbeechiespodcast at gmail.com. Look from your window.